You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The three guys, they came in and they said, we're going to pray over y'all and break off those demons that Tyler put on y'all. We want y'all to renounce Tyler. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Some leaders from IHOP were there, and the leaders from IHOP said, you've all been in sin, you've been following a false teacher, and you are partly to blame for Bethany's death. And everybody freaked out about that. Episode 5, Micah. So they started praying over the group, and they prayed over Micah individually. Tyler was a master of astral travel, and he, he did witchcraft, and he killed Bethany using magic. And we, we want to break off all those ties that were over you. And Micah sort of broke down. I killed her. I killed Bethany. On this episode, more on the circumstances surrounding the 2012 death of Bethany Ann Deaton, an intern at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. At this point, I'm wondering what happened to Micah Moore in the hours before he's believed to have falsely confessed to murdering Bethany? And how did IHOP handle this tragedy in their community? Quick recap, though, from last episode. So we know that Bethany and Micah Moore, the young man who confessed to murdering her, they had been friends. They were both fellow IHoppers, and they were part of this unaffiliated group of students led by Bethany's husband, Tyler Deaton. And we're about to get a closer look at Micah Moore's murder confession, which he gave 10 days after Bethany's body was found. And today, it's a confession that most people believe to be false. And here's some of why. The murder charge against him was dropped pretty much two years afterwards, in late 2014, before ever going to trial. And it was dropped because of a lack of evidence. Jackson County Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker, she said they could not ethically pursue a murder charge because his confession was so unreliable. And, according to lead detective Penny Cole, his original confession was a bunch of, quote, completely uncorroborated and unreliable inculpatory statements. But if that's all true, and Micah Moore really didn't kill Bethany... If Tyler really didn't tell him to kill her like Micah Moore said he did, and Bethany's death really was just a tragic suicide, then why the heck did he make this confession? If you heard from Micah Moore's lawyer about it, his defense attorney, Melanie Morgan, she'd say he was, quote, a distraught and confused young man under extreme psychological pressures. She also seems to be the first one to publicly use the term exorcism in regards to what happened to Micah Moore in the hours before he went to police. It was November 8th, 2012, nearly a month after Bethany's body was found. By this time, IHOP had kicked Tyler out, and on this day, hearing that some of the remaining members of his group were struggling, some IHOP leaders invited them all to a meeting to process and to pray. Joining me this episode, someone who was at IHOP, at the time. My name is Micah Pryor. Um, Originally, I'm from Buffalo, New York. And 
Currently, I work as a social worker and also in public health. Micah Pryor, not to be confused with Micah Moore, who made the murder confession. Micah Pryor was at IHOP during this time, and he didn't know Bethany or Tyler or Micah Moore, but he was deeply impacted by this. What have you heard about that meeting the hours before he went to the police station to confess? Um, So I've heard a lot of different things about the meeting. I heard it was wild, and I heard that there was uh, what they call manifestations and, you know, groanings and just weeping, which, you know, I guess if you place it in context of grief and mourning after the loss of a loved one, that some of those things kind of make sense. And within the context of IHOP and manifestations and, you know, the flailing and manifesting also would kind of play into this whole grieving process. So one of the, one of the keys in particular that I heard um, was that, you know, they were praying over um, the folks who were at this meeting and... At one point, Shelly Hunley, who was also there, um, she had received a word of knowledge, um, which is, you know, kind of where God told her something directly. And at that point, I had heard that she pointed at Micah and said, you have something to tell me, don't you? You have something to tell me and... Uh, from what I've heard and understand, it was that at that point, you know, it was when Micah confessed to having killed uh, Bethany Deaton. So leading this meeting was the president of IHOPU at the time, Alan Hood. Alan would have been the person who led this meeting because he's over IHOPU and a lot of these folks were students within IHOPU. So I feel like that would have fallen under his purview of jurisdiction within IHOP and IHOPU. Alan Hood served as the associate director of IHOP KC for 20 years. He was also the president of IHOPU for 13 years. Now he's no longer at IHOP today, and he did not respond to my request for comment, so I've never connected with him. But in preparation for this season, I was given by someone else the chance to listen to a secret recording of a 2015 IHOP family meeting led by Alan Hood. This would have been a few months after the murder charge was dropped against Micah Moore. And on this recording, Alan can be heard sharing with, you know, anyone from the IHOP community that wanted to unpack it at that point. He shared with them what he felt happened that night with Micah Moore and the other former members of Tyler's group, all from his perspective. And I was unable, unfortunately, to get the rights to share that audio with you. But having heard it, I will speak to it this episode. And one thing Alan shares about is the presence of the Prisoners of Hope that day. They're an IHOP-affiliated prayer group. And these guys are like the Navy SEALs of IHOP prayer warriors. They operate fairly covertly and are often trusted with the ability to identify the presence of evil or Satan's work in someone's life and to carry out deliverance sessions that can at times involve intense prayer and the laying on of hands. But even though the Prisoners of Hope were involved in this meeting, Alan Hood was really adamant that it was not an exorcism, and more so just a chance to, quote, 
heal some hearts and break some of the bonds that Tyler had put on them. So I've heard Alan describing the first part of this meeting lasting for three hours, praying and processing about what happened with this group. And I know you weren't there again, but would that have been a normal sort of session of prayer? Would it be normal for it to go on that long? You know, I think in in context, in, in, you know, understanding the situation, I don't feel like that would have been necessarily normal, right? I think that um, obviously there are times always where there's intense prayer and intercession that is happening for hours on end and it becomes ecstatic and, and re- really intense, right? But I feel like in the, again, I want to like contextualize the things that are happening in context of folks who have lost a friend. You know, I don't think that is normal, you know, being outside now and within, you know, why would it be a normal thing if, you know, they set up a meeting and didn't bring these kids to their families or bring their families in, right? Like they're, And that's kind of the odd thing to me is that, you know, a person loses someone from, um, you know, suicide and then you bring them into a prayer meeting as opposed to, you know, getting folks mental health that they would need, you know, so that whole, the whole sequence of events, right? Or like, because I've also heard that uh, once it happened, you know, they didn't necessarily report to the police at that point. And instead what happened was they went into this prayer meeting, you know, so just, it seems like the sequence of events is abnormal to me. Um, even within IHOP, like why would you move into this sort of meeting that is intimate with a bunch of victims who have lost somebody that they love. I will say in, in let's say, Alan Hood's defense, because I've heard him in this secret recording speak about that night, he says that they really had no idea the depths of how bad everything was until they got into that meeting. That's what he says, you know? There was no massive exorcism. It was really just a support group to see if these grieving kids were okay. I mean, no reason to call police at that point, really. All these kinds of details are hotly contested. Who knew what, when, especially. But no matter when IHOP senior leadership, let's say, no matter when they found out that Tyler's prayer group was a cult or cult-like, why didn't they immediately bring in mental health support from professionals? It sounds like they did much later, but they absolutely did not during the first few weeks of extreme crisis. You know, one of the frameworks I like to understand this through is like the intent versus the impact, right? So the intent, you know, there may have been no harm in people's intentions to kind of bring people together and give pastoral guidance and support. But I think the impact of that is different, um, you know, when you consider what happened and what they did after what happened, right? So... You know, Alan, I'm not saying Alan was lying in that secret recording, but I'm also looking at within the whole meeting, there was a a lot of denial about 
and I guess like the shifting of blame, you know, and not actually looking at the impact of the situation on people who have been traumatized in a significant way, right? And so that to me, it's like pushing away the blame and disregarding the impact of the situation, whether you intended to have that impact or not. One more thing about the secret recording of that 2015 IHOP family meeting. It was actually a reaction to a social media storm that had been brewing online. It was a campaign by former IHOPers, including Micah Pryor. And we were kind of creating some noise on Facebook about and social media about IHOP not telling the truth about what happened with uh, Bethany Deaton. And I think that there was so much... For me, there was so much misunderstanding about what was happening that, and personally feeling the lack of transparency of what's happening, right? So when we were doing our campaign, we were asking IHOP to tell the truth because there was a narrative that was going on within that Bethany had been killed by another person when the police reports were indicating that it was a suicide, you know? And so... Even within conversations internally, there's this whole continuing of the narrative that she was murdered by another person and there was foul play at some point when the police reports had indicated that it was suicide. So for us, um, as we are doing this social media campaign, it was to A, get IHOP to make a public statement, right? Because, you know, even that secret meeting that you're talking about, what what was happening is that there was no external transparency for folks who have been impacted by it and then were outside. What was happening was they set up a, a secret meeting in which they indicated that no one should be recording it. No one should be, you know, talking about this because it's a family meeting, you know, and so the narrative was more focused on being talking to people that are already inside as opposed to being accountable to the public and what the public is asking about what's going on inside. You know, in a lot of instances from my experience and from others' experience who have tried to get IHOP to make public statements is that the way that they operate is they want you to come to them and they want you to have a meeting on their premise on their properties, in their space, you know, as opposed to coming outside, right? So we tried to meet with a bunch of people and have them come off the property to meet with us, but there was a refusal to do so, to come to us. And there was also a refusal to give public statements. So I think that was kind of one of the main, the driving factors of, you know, the online petition is we wanted IHOP to be public about what's happening, and there seemed to be a refusal. And mostly, when you did talk to a leader, they would say, well, come into this, come here, and we'll get a coffee, and we can go into a side room in the prayer room, and you and me can have a conversation. That's the trend that continuously happens, is that when when there is an issue, it's usually you're brought into a room, with a specific leader and they talk to you one-on-one, right? And so there's no accountability in that. One, because it's secret. 
And two, because the only outcomes of that is that he said, she said, or whatever. And that plays out within this, what people are calling the exorcism too, right? You know, it's, it's interesting that nobody can really talk about it, right? No one can really know what actually happens there because of the dynamic of isolation, you know, and then it becomes, again, he said, she said, you know, and this in particular with the victims who are in this, what people are calling exorcism, like they're dealing with trauma and, you know, forced confessions are a thing, you know, and, and there's evidence that show that people make confessions about murders when they didn't actually do it because of the, the dynamics that are play between like people who are in positions of power and people who are not in positions of power. Micah Pryor is right about all of that. And false confessions, according to the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law, are one of the leading and yet most misunderstood causes of error in the American legal system. Okay, let's bring it back to this campaign that Micah Pryor was a part of to get more transparency from IHOP. It was made up of this growing community of former IHOPers who all wanted the same, but some of them took this effort to a whole nother level. A level that even some of these former IHOPers that have grievances, they've described it to me as being, at times, belligerent, hurtful, and hard to get behind. In particular, though, the five young men that led this extra effort, they had all been students, but I've even heard that one of them had even been on staff as a teacher. And on April 1st, 2014, IHOP leaders, including Mike and Alan Hood, they agreed to meet to hear them out regarding their accusations of systemic issues in the organization, including, quote, mean and abusive sociopathic behavior. These guys were not playing around, right? So it looks like they put (laughs) considerable time and effort and brain power into how to air their grievances in a manner that would result in real change. And I know that involved uh, a meeting with outside mediators, Christian Mm -hmm. mediators, but still people who were going to look at it, um, hopefully not take sides in any way uh, other than Jesus' side, praise God. Uh, (laughs) But they did come up at one point, um, you know, this group of five with the seven points of good faith. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have the seven signs of good faith here in front of me. They were the introduction of a new written grievance policy with whistleblower protection, something comparable to standard practices in the corporate or academic world. It also included the introduction of a formal written and accessible document that clearly governs disciplinary action. They also wanted an amendment to IHOP's doctrinal statement to include all non-negotiable points of belief. So, for example, if you were on staff, do you have to, or did you have to, agree with what Mike was saying at the time, that Jesus was going to come back in five to 50 years or within our lifetime or the next? Do you have to agree with that and believe that in order to be on staff? So the next one was a published statement of academic freedom, something that would give IHOPU students and faculty the right to examine data, question assumptions, and advance ideas. More of these seven signs of good faith? Public disciplinary action for certain leaders. 
They also wanted a statement that admitted to the, and I'm going to read this word for word, a statement admitting to the ambiguities, incompleteness, and potential errors of the original IHOPKC statement concerning what they knew about Tyler Deaton's group before Bethany died. And as well, a public statement apologizing for fostering a, quote, unhealthy culture that spiritually, socially, and psychologically mistreated and traumatized people. I don't think that ever happened. No. And instead, I think we see what happened in the reverse is there's that. <laughs> so the the concept of DARVO, which is denial, attacking, and reversing the victim and the offender, right? So that happens in a lot of, it's an abusive tactic that people use. And we see that that happens, right? So people were psychologically, spiritually harmed in that place. And instead of, you know, saying, hey, this wasn't our intention, uh, but this was our impact. We apologize publicly. You know, they deny it and then they attack the person who is the victim and then they reverse it and they say, we're actually the victim and you're the oppressor, you know? I want to share with you the ultimate conclusions with the seven points of good faith. This is from the mediation group. It is the opinion of the MMF mediation team that IHOPU has made a good faith, good faith attempt to address, correct, and explain the seven points and would therefore think that any public rebuke or corrections would do more harm to the body of Christ at large, to IHOPU, and to former staff and students. What was your reaction and that group of five, all those those guys that I mentioned, what was their reaction to, to the mediation team's response? Yeah, so two things come to my head. First, the mediator, he's kind of, you know, he's a friend of Mike and he's a friend of IHOP leadership. So potentially... The, the choice of the mediator wasn't someone that would actually be able to put teeth into the demands, right? Um, so secondly, you know, upon having conversations with folks who were in those meetings, they very much talked about the dynamics that were happening in the meeting, right? Like, these are people who were significantly harmed psychologically, socially, economically, in IHOP who are coming as victims to air their grievances and how they described how leadership came in. It was very jovial. It was jokey. Everybody was laughing, you know, hugs. And even, I guess, at one point, Mike was cracking jokes or something like that. And just kind of like seemingly not taking things seriously when the victims are dead serious about their demands and they're coming in with grievances and they didn't even have to show their faces, right? They put their necks out on the line knowing the impacts that this is going to cause to them. They put their necks out and then the response is just kind of like willy-nilly and just kind of like playful and joyful. Like that dynamic says, I think speaks to how serious they may have taken these demands from the group of people that came out. So let's see. Micah Pryor first winds up at IHOP starting in 2007. 
he was 18 years old. So when you finally decided to go to IHOP yourself, why did you think it was the place for you? Well, I think that contextually speaking, I think IHOP was an easy transitionary place for me to move. So growing up, I've always done uh, worship music. And so that's something that was like my whole life. I was always in church. Church was like an everyday experience for me. And I wasn't so certain about like the prayer aspect because they were always talking about how they do worship and prayer 24-7. And I I wasn't really into prayer that much. Uh, But it it, it really was the music aspect and and, uh, the worship teams that really made me feel like this was a a, a easy transition and also a place that I could be in and, and be successful. Micah Pryor also very easily took to the founding leader, Mike Bickle, and his primary teachings. He took them all to heart, including the end times predictions. If I could say simply that would the message about the end times is we're living in the end of the age. And as a result of 24-7 prayer, which is in the spirit of the Tabernacle of David, which is the reviving of the Tabernacle of David, there's going to be prayer and worship that is instrumental in catalyzing Jesus' second coming. And singers and musicians within the house of prayer uh, will partner in releasing God's end times judgments in the end of the age and on the earth. Um, So, you know, participating with God in killing people or judging people. But beyond all that, Micah Pryor's IHOP journey also involved him seeking some inner healing for what he had learned to call his sexual brokenness. I was terrified. It was. He recalls paying as much as $700 to take part in Living Waters, a six-month intensive primarily led by Tracy Bickle. Again, that's Mike Bickle's sister. And you might remember Austin talking about his experience with Living Waters back in episode two. That's when we learned that it promised a proven path for healing and freedom from things like unwanted sexual attraction. I remember the first day going in, I had knots in my stomach, you know? And I was just so nervous that I was going to, and I knew I was going to have to say it out loud. I struggle with same-sex attraction, you know, which to me now is just like, what? Of course. But like in that space and in that environment, having to say that to people was terrifying. It really was And so this is kind of an idea that the philosopher Foucault talks about and how confession makes you name and make explicit in front of other people any time you've had gay thoughts or any engagements in your life that you've had gay experiences with other men or females or non-binary or anyone, you know, that's not strictly in the heteronormative category. You had to talk about those things in front of other people. You had to name those things in front of other people. And the result being kind of like guilt and shame, being built on top of what's already 
happening at a community level within IHOP and the messaging around homosexuality or queerness. You know, marriage is between a man and a woman. I think that that language, you know, is really hurtful and abusive to people who want that, right? Because like when you are a queer person within IHOP, you know, personally, I wanted nothing more than just to be able to not feel what I felt towards men, right? And when that language is being promoted, it's like, you know, this is not good. It's between a man and a woman and anything outside of that is sinful before the eyes of God. Like that takes a toll on you, you know, always consistently hearing that your orientation is not God's best for you. And if you feel that, you feel that. But, you know, if you want to live into God's ultimate kind of like fulfillment for your life, you need to be pretty much straight. And of course, there's like differentiations between people who are actually living in those sins and actively engaging them and people who just struggle with them and are sincere believers and trying to like deal with them. Especially in the final years at IHOP, Micah Pryor says he was targeted by leadership for his interest in other kinds of theological ideas, ideas that were counter to IHOP beliefs. And straight up, Micah Pryor is far from the first person to tell me that non-Christian literature and other religious texts were often discouraged there, at least back then. Especially if you were in a position of influence, just so they would make sure that you're not necessarily spreading bad theology. And so as like a singer and, you know, as an academic and as someone who read a lot, I would bring out this language within you know, different briefings or conversations with people about like, you know, well, well, what do you think about like theistic evolution? Maybe God was involved in the process of the evolution or do you really think that we should take everything literally in the Bible and, you know, talking about the problems of like interpreting that, you know, there becomes this sudden like focus on you and the leader will come up to you and be like, hey, let's go into a side room. And they'll have you in there, just you and them, right? So the intimidation and the the power differential that's taking place between just someone who attends and who's on a worship team and the leader or a leader, you know, that power differential is like, it's at the end of the day, you can't argue, right? Because it's like, he said, she said, or it's what they said versus what I said, you know? And so that kind of tactic of like, isolating people um, and having these conversations and then not involving other people within that would be a way that I felt in a lot of ways I was manipulated into not doing, not talking about this type of theology. In 2014, after nearly eight years, Micah Pryor left IHOP for a variety of reasons including what he feels was a gross mishandling of everything with Bethany. What was your relationship with her? Uh, I never knew Bethany. I had friends who knew Bethany. Did you have any kind of awareness of Tyler Deaton and his group before she died? Prior to Bethany's suicide, I had no awareness of their group at all. But after Bethany died... He does remember having meetings about what was happening 
at the time. And leadership would come in and, you know, they held a lot of like, I guess I understand them as like hearing sessions, although they weren't necessarily hearing sessions. It was more like narrative control sessions. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how IHOP dealt with the internal narrative was, you know, creating this space or this facade of like, you can come in here and you can ask any questions and we'll answer the questions for you and we'll help you understand what happened. And and even though like on the outside, after the police reports came out that Bethany Deaton committed suicide, internally that narrative was not being promoted. And, you know, even within my personal family, right, there were these like, because my entire family was involved there were arguments that we had with each other and I had to be like, I'm not staying in an abusive community like this anymore. And you can choose me or you can choose them. That's up to you. But I know what I'm choosing. You know, it was my cutting off period, right? As I was leaving, I just completely broke it off, you know, and that's traumatic in and of itself, right? When you break We break off from what you knew and what you are in your community, but you make a hard break just so that you can break away. How did IHOP handle you leaving personally when you said that you wanted to go? I said I was leaving and everything that had been said about what happens when you leave had been said prior to me actually leaving. And so then as I left, they didn't even have to say anything to me, right? Because we already knew. Seeds were planted. Yeah, those seeds were planted. That message has been sent implicitly. IHOP is not an organization that's explicitly telling you you can't leave, right? It's like what we've talked about earlier, these kind of mechanisms that control narratives that are presenting information in a more implicit way as opposed to explicit messaging that says you cannot leave. Uh, But the implicit messaging be that if you leave for this or for that, you've given up on the prophecies that have been given to us as a people. If you leave IHOP, you know, for secular things or um, other times even like for other Christian things, you lose your status as like a true elite person right and you miss out on the promise the promises that were that were guaranteed to IHOP and you may end up like falling away or becoming lethargic you know and and losing your passion and actually guess what in a lot of ways that messaging is correct right because when you leave the center and you don't adhere to the way that you are uh, expected to believe in IHOP you actually find, whoa, there's an entire world outside of here that is as diverse in thinking as I never even knew, right? Um, so I totally know what you mean by that. That's what it was like for me too. I was like, what? What? Oh my You're gosh. Like, oh my God, maybe I am going to fall away with yeah. some other gay guy, right? Because why not? Like, this is this is great, you know? And I I would say, like, also that what happened to Bethany Deaton is is completely tragic. I think that that situation is representative of a broader thing that is happening within 
this community in a way. You know, it's not all as dr- dramatic and on in the newspapers like this situation is, but I'm talking specifically to mental health. I'm talking specifically to isolation, you know, and and the behaviors that that are promoted and take place within IHOP adversely impact a lot of people's mental health, right? And people may not be committing suicide all the time as a result of that, but people are depressed. You know, you do things to young adults like you're like, oh, okay, don't, don't masturbate. Don't think about sex because God knows every thought in your head. Don't lust. Don't do this. You know, eventually over time, if you are in that situation as in that adolescent phase, right? Those are completely healthy and normal things to be experiencing as a result of like hormonal changes happening within your body. But within that space, there's a large group of young adults that are coming into this group and are being told not to do those things. Don't do this because it's unpure. And then as a result of those things, there are certain behaviors that are a response. So pray more, spend more time in the prayer room, fast more, you know, do all these spiritual disciplines that aren't necessarily addressing the issue or it's not even an issue, aren't addressing what they think it's addressing because these are natural processes that are taking place. There are a hell of a lot of good-hearted people that I've met in that place, and I believe they exist in leadership too. I think that when you have, and this doesn't even have to be a religious organization, when you have an organization that refuses accountability and transparency about processes or decision-making, I think that you always have people who are going to be, you know, chewed up and spit out, right? Coming up next, Gracia. It was just this whole mess. At the end of April 2014, right around the same time that IHOP was in mediation, that's when Gracia, an intern, came to certain members of IHOP leadership and told them that she had been sexually assaulted by someone on staff. Their first words out of their mouth when I told them was, you better not be lying about this. You're going to ruin this poor man's life. How did IHOP handle this and Gracia's other grievances in the months and years to come? We'll hear her side of the story. And it was just extremely traumatizing to continuously have to be talking about it. And when I'd ask them why I had to keep talking about it, they'd tell me, well, we're trying to decide whether or not you were raped. Also, on the next and final episode this season. When she shared her story, the first thing that should have happened was someone should have called authorities and let people that actually handle those situations handle it. That's Nancy Hester. She used to be a main pastor over the entire prayer room. And she recently called me up to say she's ready to speak out publicly for the first time to support Gracia. How hard is it to say you are so sorry for something that you did that hurt someone? And, which is why I'm now involved in this, because I'm like, I'm done with this. You know, it's like, all you had to do was say that you were sorry. That's all you had to do. It should not be that hard. And hey, huge thanks as well to Micah Pryor for joining me this episode. 
him and everyone who shared with me behind the scenes about Micah Moore. I wasn't able to reach Micah Moore personally to give him the chance to comment, but if you're wondering what he's up to, people who know and respect his privacy immensely have told me that at the very least, he's doing better now than he was back then. <laughs> 